Welcome to Seoul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees unpack what it means to be Asian and adopted by discussing culture, race, history, and sharing adoptee stories. I'm Benny. And I'm Shanae. This week, we are joined by fellow Korean adoptee, Mark Hagland. Mark has been actively involved in many transracial adoptee forums for over 20 years as a moderator, panelist, speaker, and author. He was also featured in Glenn Morey's documentary project, Side by Side. Mark, it's so good to have you. I'm glad that we could chat a little bit earlier this week and that you can be with us today. Some of our listeners know you from Side by Side or from seeing in you in some of the forums, but do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your adoption story? Sure. And Shanae and Benny, thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be with you. I really appreciate it. Well, so really basically, I was born in late 1960. I was adopted uh, along with the twin brother when we were eight months old. We were actually adopted near to birth, but we were we were too ill to travel. We came to the United States when we were eight months old in 1961. We're raised by um, white American parents of Norwegian and German descent, thus my Norwegian last name. And so I grew up in Milwaukee, but as I always like to say, I escaped. And uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison undergrad. I came here to Chicago, where I live, in 1981 for graduate school, graduate journalism school, and I've been here ever since. Um, I'm a professional journalist in my work. I am a healthcare journalist. I write about healthcare policy operations and strategic information technology issues. And I have been involved in the transracial adoption world for 20 years now. And I volunteer in a lot of different ways. I've been involved in conferences, for example, the Con Conference. I, I missed last year, but I was involved 16 years straight. Uh, and then I'll be involved in at least one session uh, this summer for the virtual conference. And I help to manage Facebook groups around transracial adoption, and I participate in some others. So, yeah, I've been pretty active. That's great. And we had talked a little bit about, and I know that we definitely want to get into your experience um, working with adoptive parents, because I know that's something that you're very passionate and knowledgeable about. But before we get into that, you and I had talked about how you were there for the original formation of a lot of the Korean adoptee mini gatherings and those initial stages of that community building that I think so many of us who are a little bit younger are now really entering and and using. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So it actually started in a kind of a funny way. In 1999, the Holt Agency, which, as you know, is one of the largest agencies, I was not adopted through Holt, but the Holt Agency um, held what they called the gathering. And they wanted to showcase happy, successful Korean adoptees. (laughs) So they gathered about 400 adult adoptees in Washington, D.C., But little did they suspect that the adoptees would actually want to talk to each other. And long story short, what happened was people started sharing really real stuff. And it was certainly discomforting for the whole agency people to have adult adoptees say, well, actually, I want to talk about child abuse, (laughs) you know, and I want to talk about racism. And I want, you know, and it it was, uh, I was not there, but I understand it was quite uncomfortable once the discussion started. So the adult Korean adoptees, CAD, said, let's just get together ourselves. And what happened was a year later, 
the first mini gathering, as they came to be called, was held in Minneapolis, and about 65 people attended, including myself. And it was sponsored by uh, someone who's become a very good friend of mine over the years, Kat Turner. And it was an amazing experience to, for the first time, be with a peer group. And I remember sitting at dinner, and people literally were finishing each other's stories. It's it's, it's a kind of an astonishing thing. And so a whole bunch of mini gatherings then were held. People were very enthusiastic. I sponsored a small one in Chicago, but within the space of about five years, there were about eight mini gatherings right away. And then it just expanded, and there were other groups that started up, IKAA, which does every other year uh, a gathering in Seoul, and that's been very successful. At the same time, the Khan Conference was starting up, and that really, it's, it's interesting because that's evolved. Initially, there were many more adoptive parents. Now, two-thirds of the attendees of Khan are adoptees, so the, the whole mm. complexion, as it were, of Khan has changed. The whole focus has changed. And Khan had two wonderful executive directors who are white moms, and now the executive director is a Korean adoptee. So a lot has happened. And then over time, what happened was, uh, well, the internet happened. (laughs) And I got involved in Facebook groups. I helped to moderate several different ones. And now we're in different languages, too. Well, that's right. I forgot that you're the polylinguist, too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) One of my very few skills in life. (laughs) We had touched upon it a little bit in our first episode, I think, Benny, but we didn't get into too much detail about Holtz International and really the origins of early adoption. But I thought you were able to articulate it so well the other night. Mark, do you mind speaking about it? Sure. And I just want i just want to make sure to be very clear, I am not a Holtz adoptee, so I'm really sharing based on observed knowledge. And I, you know, many, many, many of my friends are Holtz adoptees. So what happened was at the end of the Korean War, um, you know, South Korea was completely devastated, as we all know. So there was a missionary couple, Harry and Bertha Holt, and they started kind of gathering the children together. At the time, you know, there were literally several hundred thousand children wandering the streets in rags in South Korea. I mean, it was a very terrible time, you know, trying to get food out of garbage cans and begging and all, you know, all of these things. So Harry Holt, who was a missionary, started writing letters to fellow Protestant ministers in the upper Midwest and West, whom he knew personally, and said, you know, we have to save these children. So that was the origin of the Holt Agency, and it was the first large international adoption agency. And in fact, what then happened was we, Korean adoptees, were the first large group of international adoptees from any single country to any other single country. And after a few years, the adoptees started to be adopted to many countries, the United States, but also Canada, Australia, all the Western European countries, you know, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, France. And that was the beginning of international adoption and as, as a phenomenon. And some laws got changed. And then eventually, with the whole end of the Vietnam War and, and Operation Baby Lift and all that, significant legal changes were made in the United States. And then the floodgates kind of opened to international adoption. So the end of the Korean War was the beginning 
of international adoption as a phenomenon. There were always a few here and there individual private adoptions from different countries to different countries, but that was hold was really the beginning on a mass scale. Mm-hmm. And they were mostly mixed race orphans originally, correct? For if, um... uh, well, some were. I mean, it's hard to say. I don't want to uh, get this wrong. Perhaps a quarter or a third were, but a lot were 100% Korean children. One of the things to remember, and this is something that I learned over the years, that you know they used the terminology of orphan, and there was a lot of white saviorism in that. But most of the children who were adopted were not orphans in the traditionally understood lay sense, right? If you ask someone on the street, what is an orphan? An orphan is a child with no living parents. Most were not orphans. I mean, many kind of incredible stories where you could park a child in an orphanage because they would take care of your child. They would feed them and house them. And then you could pick them up if you could afford to take care of them. And I, and I kind of compare it to a pawn shop, which sounds terrible, but that's kind of how it operated. You know, Diane Borchay Lim, who's a famous Korean adoptee, who did her first documentary, First Person Plural, and then her second documentary, In the Matter of Cha Jung Hee, is about that. She was, and of course, this is totally public knowledge. This is a documentary, so I'm, I'm not telling any tale out of school. Diane, at the last second, was substituted for a little girl named Cha Jung Hee because Cha Jung Hee's father came and picked her up. So she was adopted, and she was told, now your name is Cha Jung Hee. And she was 10 years old. Oh, so. Yeah, it was very traumatic, and she didn't speak English, and then, of course, she learned English quickly, and this comes up in the documentary. She talks about it, how, and she screened the film when it first came out uh, at Cannes for us, and she was tr- she was just learning English. She's 10 years old. She's trying to explain to her mother, Mrs. Borchet, she felt so bad because she thought that if her parents found out that she wasn't Cha Jung-hee, that she, they would send her back which, of course, they wouldn't. But the, the orphanage and the adoption agency had been writing to the Borchets in California and sending pictures and writing letters saying, you know, Cha Jung-hee is a beautiful child and here are pictures and, you know, she's eating well or whatever. And then at the last minute, uh, Jung-hee, that's her first name in English, was taken back by her father. And so Deanne was substituted for her um, and so there's this whole, she built a whole documentary around it. It's fascinating. I recommend it to everyone. And in the documentary, she actually found Cha Jung-hee. She oh, basically wow. lives in a fishing village. I mean, that's what Deanne's life would have been there. But most people, most of the children adopted from South Korea were not true orphans in the sense of having no living parents. Most had at least one living parent they were often abandoned in the streets. I mean, Korea was very, very, very poor and devastated then. It was right after the war. Seoul had been flattened twice. I mean, if you look at pictures, you can search for them now on the web. You can search for images. And, you know, now it's amazing. Like, you go to Seoul, and it's like New York with all Korean people. You know, and you go to these wealthy areas like Gangnam, which are so sophisticated and high-tech, and everyone's got three phones and you know the whole thing (laughs) and it's hard to believe like if you look at photos from 1953-54 i mean it's it's unbelievable the difference so so most of us were not pure orphans in the true sense Mm -hmm. it's so interesting to hear you say that just about the difference between korea post immediately post-war and korea now because i remember oh i think it was in adopted territory 
that it wasn't uncommon for adoptees, especially of the later generations, like my generation and and beyond, to have this idea that Korea is still that war-torn, you know, sort of rubble-ridden place. And that there's that moment when you realize that it's not (laughs) um, is so just earth-shattering because mentally you assume that it has to still be in a state of disarray because that's why you were adopted when that's not necessarily the case. Right. I had I had this fascinating conversation at the Los Angeles mini gathering, which would have been 2003, I think it was, with an adoptee who was uh, born about 12 years after me. So she was born in like 72 or something like that. And already by then, I mean, it wasn't what it is now, but it was certainly not what it was in 1953. And she said, you know, it's interesting for me because I go back and I think about 19, I think it was 71, 72, she was adopted. Korea was no longer like a devastated war-torn country anymore, South Korea. And so for her, it was very complex to go back and visit because for me, in a way, I don't know, I sit in a weird kind of privilege because at the time I was born, relinquished and adopted, South Korea was a disaster. I was extremely poor. Uh, I have no doubt. I don't know anything really for sure. I have no doubt that my parents were very, very poor. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm certain of it, right? And so I don't have some of the complexity. When you look at it now, so South Korea is either the 11th or 12th richest country in the world by GDP, depending on who's counting in, in the moment. Most children now who are relinquished are relinquished for one of two reasons. There's still a terrible stigma against childbirth out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. So young women, you know, they they don't realize what's going on. They fall in love with some boy. Some girl falls in love with some boy. She doesn't know she's going to make a baby. And the parents of both teens or young people put tremendous pressure on the, the mother, the birth mother to relinquish. So that's one reason why children are interested. The other is a terrible reason, which is that in East Asian culture, in including in Korean culture, there's this terrible stigma for any visual, what they would call a defect. I mean, we would be more sensitive, but like if you, if you walk with a limp or if you, you know, you have a cleft palate or you like have a, a, a somewhat lame arm or something, something like that, anything that's visually identifiable, there's a huge stigma and that's, or if you're special needs, so those are the main reasons why children are still being relinquished now. And the fact is, the South Korean government, they have almost no social welfare in there. But South Korean society is a wealthy society now. They could take care of these children. Um, mm-hmm. But South Koreans are really, really reluctant to adopt outside birth lines. They do in small numbers, but not enough to... Uh, you know, there are a lot of children being relinquished to orphanages now. In, in 20, 2021, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable, you know. Right, for sure. Mark, that's interesting that you mentioned the reasons why South Korea still relinquishes children. Maybe a month ago, I learned from my adoptive mother why I was relinquished. That was always the kind of a question that I tiptoed around. But she found the documentation and confirmed, too, that my birth mother and birth father definitely were not wed and had me out of wedlock. Right. And 
also kind of had some irrevocable differences to put it quite bluntly. So that's interesting that you say that. So that kind of hits home for me to, to confirm yeah. kind of that, what you're saying. Um, I also kind of wanted to ask you too. So I was born in 85 and I just learned that you're from Wisconsin and you just learned that I'm from Wisconsin too, originally. And we have to have a conversation about cheese, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That That's seems a like a reoccurring theme. Yes, right, no, I could right, right. I could talk about and fish fry. all day, Mark. And fish oh, fry. All day. Yep. <laughs> yep. I can talk about that all day. Yeah. Uh, but what I'm interested in knowing is my parents always felt like they didn't have the resources or maybe the guidance to raise a Korean adoptee. And as a child, I felt like I didn't have these groups or, you know, forums to reach out to as well to, you know, be able to connect with other like-minded and similar people as myself. Where have you seen that over the years since you were born and how that's progressed and what that looks like today and what that maybe looked like in the past? Well, I mean, I was born in the Pleistocene era. So uh, I mean, we, we literally had nothing and my parents had nothing. I think back to the fact, I sometimes tell this story in groups and in conferences, you know, so my parents adopted me and my twin brother when in 1960, and we came over in 61. We were too, too ill to come over right away, so we came over eight months later. There was literally nothing. There were no books. There, was, there were no intellectual or cultural resources of any kind. And also in those days, I mean, my parents were of modest means, but even people who weren't, there was literally no idea among the parents adopting in the first wave of international adoption, that their children wouldn't want to have anything to do with their birth cultures or birth societies. I look back now, it was like the dark ages. And my parents had amazing emotional intelligence, especially my mother. And they did everything that they could, but there was no, there were no cultural, you know, there were no culture camps. There was nothing. So it saddens me. I mean, you guys are much younger than I am. I just turned 60. But it saddens me that even when you were growing up, which was only 20 years ago, that things were still not so great. What's The good news is that now in 2021, there are many resources. And I mean, this sounds kind of simplistic, but at a really basic level, we have the internet. <laughs> you know, like a 10-year-old child can learn about Korea and learn a little bit of the Korean language and see Korean people. Like you can just Google it. And I think that's different. And obviously, there are other resources. You know, there are culture camps, and I support culture camps. I my my problem with culture camps is not culture camps. My problem is that many white adoptive parents think, "Oh, we're going to send little Johnny or Susie to culture camp for six days, and then that will take care of everything, right?" <laughs> and that, you know, it's it's so. I mean, the culture camps have their place and they do do good things. And I've spoken at culture camps, but, you know, the, the idea that you're going to go for six days to some place and maybe learn to roll kimbap or something and then you're all fixed, that yeah. it's, it's amazing how unknowing some of the parents are. But there are resources now. So I think the good thing, per your question, I'm sorry, I kind of rambled there. The good thing is that now adoptees who want to connect there are a million groups. There are groups online. There are groups, you know, there, there are gatherings. You know, many people are going like IKAA. You know, every two years they gather in Seoul. They have, you know, they get like several hundred 
Korean adoptees from all over the world, right? And there's just a lot of opportunities now to connect. Mm-hmm. Whose responsibility do you feel it is to do that kind of prep? I mean, I know a lot of the organizations that you've talked about and spoken at and things are not organizations that are either backed by or have come out of the adoption agencies themselves. If anything, they've come out of Korean adoptees themselves mobilizing and saying, you know, we have voices, we need to be heard, we want to put it bluntly, improve the situation for younger adoptees. I mean, do you feel like more needs to be done in any particular group? Well, I mean, so you've asked the great question, and you have 72 hours for me to answer. I mean, <laughs> there's, so, there's so much there. But very briefly, first of all, the agencies, the adoption agencies should be doing much more. But they really don't feel motivated to do it. I'll tell you a brief story that will kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. About 15 years ago, an agency, local agency here in Chicago, that does transracial and international adoption as well as domestic transracial adoption, had me speak. I was connected to them. They were referred to me. So one of the directors called me and said, literally, she said, we would love to have you come in this very sing-songy voice and share your story of personal success. And we talked for a few minutes, and I said, well, you know, I'll be glad to speak, but I do feel the moral obligation to at least reference racial identity and racism. And there was this, like, incredibly long pause. I thought the call had dropped. I mean, it was several seconds, and then I heard, okay. And uh, so I spoke, and I spoke for about 20 minutes. It was a prospective Adoptive Parents Day. And literally, my mention of race, racial identity, and racism was about a minute and a half long. But I was never uh, invited back. And so the, the agencies don't really, they don't want to lose any prospective parents. It's as simple as that. You know, they're customers. In theory, they should have post-adoptive services, post-adoption services. Very few do. The few that do, they're kind of lip service to post-adoption services. They don't really do anything. So then where do you go? And part of the problem is that most adoptive parents are completely in the adoptive parent fog. You know, we talk about the adoptee fog, but transracially adoptive parents are in a a big old fog. And they don't even realize that there's an issue until their child first experiences racism in preschool or is very distressed and angry that they don't match their parents or anyone else. So. I wish there were some, I mean, that's why I help to moderate these Facebook groups. That's why I participate in Khan. You know, that's why I've contributed to several anthologies created by adult adoptees. I think one of the most positive things that's happened is we adult transracial adoptees of all races and all backgrounds have been creating this amazing literature of books, documentaries, videos, blogs, even poetry and music for the last 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And now there's a wonderful, I mean, there are at least 10 or 12 amazing books that parents can read. There are amazing documentaries they can view. There are blogs, you know, like my friend J. Ron Kim writes a blog, Harlow's Monkey. I mean, there's no excuse in the year 2021 to live in that fog and think, oh my gosh, there's nothing I can do. I don't know anything. 
use the Google. Sorry, that was an incredibly roundabout answer, but there is no single locus. The, the challenge is that the people who have the most knowledge are us, the adult transracial adoptees. And most adoptive parents would, I don't know, it, it's wild. The people who most need our groups, like transracial adoption perspectives, are the parents who would never think to join them. And so, you know, they're the ones who still in 2021 think that they can simply adopt a child of another race and that child will just kind of be fine. There's so much white privilege and white ignorance in it. It's pretty, pretty astonishing. And one's ideological, religious, etc. beliefs can really get in the way. What's wonderful is when parents attend conferences, when they join our Facebook groups, and they start to learn. A lot of them learn quickly. Some of this, it's not so much that it's hard. It's that if you were raised white in white society, there's just a lot that you don't know. And that's part of the fog aspect, right? If you don't know that you don't know something, you don't know it, right? Right. Like how how can you be shown that you don't know something if you don't even know there's something missing? Right. Yeah. I definitely want to talk more about the maybe some some of the advice for adopted parents, but I'm interested in knowing, Mark, if there was a impetus or motive for you to be so involved in your life with all these forums and all these Facebook groups. Was there something that brought that on to come more organically? Yeah, well, it evolved forward organically. And what happened was I got involved in con and I loved it. And then I don't know if you guys are active on Facebook, but one of the funny things is people can bring you into Facebook groups and you don't even know it. Like suddenly you're in the left-handed knitters group and you're neither left-handed nor a knitter. (laughs) And uh, it's like, oh, how interesting. So I was pulled into a group that was very strange. It was run by an adoptee who's a black British woman. And she pulled me in and my friend, Michelle Hughes, who's an adoption attorney who's biracial. She also adopted her son as a single mom by choice. And it was a very bizarre Facebook group. This adoptee seemed to hate other adoptees. It was just very strange. And we protested some really racist posts and comments, and we were immediately kicked out. So Michelle wrote me a PM on Facebook and said, "Do you want? why don't we start our own group? And I was like, sure. And <laughs> that was the entire amount of thought we gave to it. And we created our group called Transracial Adoption. And then some stuff happened and we changed it to the name Transracial Adoption Perspectives. But that was the origin. And then what happened was we learned a lot. I mean, the reason I'd, I've stayed with this, and we started this really about eight years now, I'd have to go back and think, but we started doing this about eight years ago. And then one of our members created a Spanish language group, and I got pulled into that, and now I'm involved in a Scandinavian group. But what excites me about it is I want to, and, and I want to support adult adoptees. We have adult adoptees who are members, so support everybody else on their journeys. But most of all, my sense of mission is really driven by wanting to help the littlest adoptees. And the only way I can help them is through their parents, you know, because they're two and three, right? And I do not want adoptees who are two and three and four right now in 2021 to go through all the stuff that I went through. You know, growing up in your total whiteness was devastating. 
And that was even with having very loving parents. But I ended up with a terrible complex about my appearance. You know, it took me really many years to get out of the adoptee fog. And I just don't want children, as I say, who are two, three, and four now to struggle the way that I did, you know. And the good news is some of these parents are really listening. They're moving their families into as much diversity as possible. I will say the absolute fundamental is you must move into as much racial diversity as possible with mirrors, racial da- daily racial mirrors of your child's specific race, so Black, Latinx, Asian, Native American, as well as all people of color, races of all colors. And they need to see adults and children of color. That is like a very fundamental thing. And to the extent that you can, you need to connect them to birth culture. If you can do that, if you can do those things, you're a third of the way there, whatever. I mean, not having grown up with any of that, I internalized racism to a tremendous extent. I kind of joke, but it's real. <laughs> I say, when I was growing up, it was clear to me that not being white was a, a capital offense and a cardinal sin, yeah. but I couldn't, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't fix it, right? Yeah, yeah. And children should not have to internalize racism towards themselves. That's the most damaging thing. Right. Yeah. I hear you talking about you trying to help out, you know, two and three-year-olds and the people who experience racism in kindergarten and that breaks my heart because I'm sure everyone on this call can relate to that. And yeah, you're exactly right. I think, you know, we already talked about stories when we were a kid that we experienced some major racism experiences and it's tough and we don't know how to internalize it. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, you know, there's more openness on parents becoming part of those groups and yeah. uh, genuinely trying to learn. Yeah. Which is good. As I say, the the sad part is there are hundreds of thousands of white transracially adoptive parents in the United States alone who most need what we have to offer in these various groups. And the people who most need what we have to offer are the least likely to seek it out. So there are children who are five years old now who are having the experiences I had in 1965, (laughs) right? Like that is kind of mind-blowing, right? Yes. Yeah. About four years ago, we had a post in our transracial adoption perspectives group, and it was from a white mom who said, well, so my husband and I set up this farm. She didn't say what state, which is fine. She said, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're in the wilderness. And we have, I think it was an eight-year-old, eight-year-old or nine-year-old black son. And she said, we're 400 miles from the nearest city. I was like, oh my gosh. And we can't move. We you know, put all our life savings in this farm, blah, 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 blah. So we live in the middle of the wilderness. What can we do to give him racial mirrors? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you you couldn't see me me banging my head against the wall behind the screen. <laughs> and so I said, all right. And, and she got a lot of pushback. A lot of people were saying, well, you have to move. You have to move. She said, no, we can't move. We can't move. So I said, okay, here's what you have to do. You must, when you can, like once a month, whatever it is, you have to at some regular interval. Take your child into the nearest large city, whatever that large city is. You have to go into areas where his race is reflected. He was black, so you, you, you have to go into areas where he will see other black people. And go to festivals, street festivals, go shopping, go eating in restaurants, whatever it takes. 
So, okay, whatever, you're, you're on this farm in the middle of nowhere, you can't move, blah, blah, blah. You have to do something. And what astonishes me is how some parents are like, you always hear this, you know, I, I love my child more than anything in the world. I'd walk over broken glass. I'd, you know, I'd swallow sulfur dioxide. And then you say, well, can you just make sure your child gets to go to a dance class where there are other children of color? Oh, no, that's too much trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. In regards to the racial mirrors, I know you and I talked a little bit. I've personally gotten a lot of questions and seen a lot of questions of people who are white adoptive parents who are asking, you know, how do I, especially if they're in areas that are not particularly diverse, or even if they are diverse, but they're they're not plugged into communities of color themselves. They're often asking, you know, how do you find racial mirrors for your child as a white adoptive parent? And you had a really great answer to that. Right. So the first part of it is don't just approach random black women in the grocery store. Now, we had someone in our tap group saying, well, I've been approaching random black women in the grocery store asking them if they'll be my friend, but they're they're usually horrified and baffled. And we're like, yeah, you know. <laughs> what, what I said and what others said is, do this based on your interests and, of course, your child's interests. So if you love home decorating or if you love, like, antique cars or whatever, join a club do an activity related to your organic interests, things you actually are interested in, where you will meet people who are of your child's race and other races of color. And then you develop real friendships based on mutual interests. And then those friendships deepen. And at some point, those adults of color are willing to get real with you. Because one thing that happens is there's so many superficial interactions in our society, and most white people really have no idea what people of color think. They really don't. They live in a white world with all white people. They might have an impression of what what people of color think, but they they literally don't know. And the only way you'll break through that is to meet people based on common interests who you can develop authentic friendships with. That's so important. And as I've said, it doesn't count that your dry cleaner is Korean. Like, come on. (laughs) You know? You say, I've come to pick up that suit jacket. And, you know, like your interaction is 30 seconds long. And then you say, well, I have great diversity in my life. My child sees my dry cleaner. Yes. I've heard that that before. Yeah. 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 I've I've heard that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so I think that's the basic. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. That authenticity piece, I feel like is so big. And that's even like what you were saying earlier about postcard culture versus full culture. Uh, I feel like it again, goes back to that authentic piece. You know, it's not enough just to get Korean food. If you have an adopted Korean child once every month and say, Oh, we're teaching them about their culture, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, there was this, there was this great New York times article about five years ago. And I was like, yes. So they interviewed these white parents of adopted Chinese children and like they went to one family's house and it was very pretty and all that. And they had posters, you know, tourist posters from travel posters from China. And they had, you know, some Chinese crafts and some things like that. Well, that was what they thought Chinese culture was. And I'm like, okay, that's, you know, I mean, it's, it's good to have something, but one of the problems is that, adoptive parents, they themselves don't know anything about their child's birth culture. And so 
all they can give them is something very superficial. And I often talk to parents about how the first, if if you're an international adoptee, the first visit to your birth country can be shattering. Like a lot of international adoptees, including Korean adoptees, have no idea what to expect. And their understanding of their birth culture is incredibly shallow and narrow. Part of it is because their parents knew nothing and probably in many cases weren't interested. And so they go over and every culture on earth is full and complex. So they go, quote unquote, back to their birth country and they realize, I mean, they're shocked. They're shocked by how they're not accepted, but they're also just shocked by elements of the society. So like one common thing, I have many friends who are Indian adoptees. They've been back to India, and the first time they go back, they're like completely shocked at how misogynistic Indian society still is. So I have numerous Indian, female Indian adoptee friends. Well, they kind of need to know that before they go. And so what happens is a lot of internationally adopted parents, all they know is that postcard culture, right? Right? Like they've taken their kids uh, you know, to have uh, bibimbap at a Korean restaurant. And they're like, well, we're so integrated with Korean culture. <laughs> and then and then their adopted kids become young adults and they visit South Korea and they're like completely shocked by everything they see and hear and the complexity of the culture. So adoptive parents really need to realize they're on a lifelong journey and they need to learn in depth about their child's culture. They need to know the good and the bad so that they can counsel their child. They need to understand as much as they can as a foreigner some of the nuances. And that goes back to meeting people who were born in that culture, right? They can help explain some of these things because I have literally seen on two motherland tours, Korean adoptees go back to South Korea and crumble. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sad. It's like really, really sad. Mark, you've been so involved in so many different pieces of activism and forums, and I think that's amazing. I'm interested in knowing now, you know, we kind of hit on before that it took a long time for you to come out of the fog yeah. when you were younger. Without being too sensitive, I'm just kind of curious to know, how do you feel about yourself today as a Korean adoptee and as a Korean? Well, I I feel good, but I feel good in a kind of a specific way, which I should probably explain you know, it took me many years to figure out my identity. And I would say I have a complex identity. So when people ask me what I'm, it depends on how they ask and what they're asking. I define myself as an Asian man. I define myself as Asian American. I was born in South Korea, so I'm ethnically Korean. But I never say I'm Korean American because there's usually some connotation, some assumption that I have some connection to South Korea and to Korean Americans, and I really don't, not mm. not really. And so I'm very careful about that. So I'm very comfortable in my identity now as an Asian man and as a person of color. But I've also come to accept that I don't feel acceptance from Korean Americans or Koreans in South Korea as a Korean person. And so I'm sure you guys understand that. So it's it's kind of like this complex, hard to put on a little business card, right? <laughs> like hard to summarize uh, identity. So I feel comfortable as a person of color. I feel comfortable as an Asian American, you know, and it took me decades to get there. I suppose really in terms of precedence, I would say 
I identify as a person of color, I identify as a transracial adoptee, and I identify as an Asian man. I don't really have a strong feeling of affinity towards South Korea or Korean culture. And I think we all have to allow ourselves and others to feel whatever we want to feel. I participated in a clubhouse among Korean adoptees a couple weeks ago, and we're going to do another one tomorrow. And people were talking about, you know, we had adoptees who are just starting to actively go down the path towards identity self-actualization. And some adoptees saying, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, like dying to go to South Korea, but I'm so afraid because when I encounter Koreans, I feel rejected and all this. And, And I felt great empathy towards them, but I also kind of felt like, And I did say this, we have to allow ourselves and others to end up at whatever place we end up at, right? Mm -hmm. The ultimate self-actualization doesn't mean that you're going to feel Korean at the end of the day. You could feel something else. I kind of describe myself as a citizen of the world, which sounds, it sounds a little pretentious, but, but that is how I feel. You know, I, I relate to a number of different cultures but I don't feel like I don't feel the strong Koreanness. That's I only really feel it in my body. I don't feel I don't I don't speak fluent Korean. There are a lot of elements of Korean culture. There are elements that I admire, and then there are a lot of alienating elements. In relation to what you were saying, Mark, but also just because somebody had asked me the other day, and and I was sort of taken aback, and I still honestly don't know how I personally feel about it. But do either of you consider yourselves to be immigrants? That is the greatest question. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I remember during the 2016 presidential campaign, and I'll try to say this non-politically, but there were all these conversations because there was so much anti-immigrant feeling and so much anti-immigrant rhetoric. And there were adult adoptees saying, well, I'm not an immigrant. I was like, you're not an immigrant. You were born outside this country. You're an immigrant. You know. Now, I understand that we were raised by white parents in whiteness, white Americanness. So we're inside outsiders, our outside insiders. But we're immigrants. If we weren't born in the country, you're an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And they're all, they're all different types of immigrants, right? I mean, they're immigrants. They're people who immigrate at the age of 45. But there are a lot of 1.5 generation immigrants, too. You know, I, for years, I was friends with, and then he moved away, but I was friends with a Korean American who came over at the age of 10. And he has a lot of complexity in his identity, too. So he speaks Korean, but he his teenage years and beyond were all spent in the United States. So he has this complex identity, too. But yeah, if we were born outside the country, we're, we're immigrants. And I, I also feel... I guess I can say this without being partisan political, but sociopolitically, I definitely identify as an immigrant. I, I support other immigrants of all races, and I, I don't want us to sit in that weird privilege where we grew up in white Americanness, and therefore we can detach ourselves psychologically from immigrants. You know, I sometimes think, you know, I'll just mention this, you know, like, I watch the late night news in Spanish on Univision, and right now, you know, they they naturally have a lot of coverage of the migrants coming from the Northern Triangle countries in Central America. The stories are just unbelievable. They're completely heartbreaking. And I sometimes think, you know, how am I different from those people? Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm different from those people. You know, I, I came here 
and I came under the umbrella of my, under the wing of my parents' white American citizenship privilege. So I got citizenship as an infant, but I'm not any better than poor family that walks 2,000 miles from Honduras and crosses the border because their country is in complete collapse. I feel morally that we international adoptees cannot separate ourselves from other immigrants, uh, cannot put ourselves on a different level. Mark, I want to go back to Wisconsin a little bit, not, not for my own reasoning, but you mentioned something when you first introduced yourself this evening. That's something that hit me. And I'm curious to know if you're willing to share. You mentioned that you, you say that you escaped from Milwaukee. Do you care to kind of talk about that? Sure. I mean, well, first of all, I'm kind of, when I say that, I'm kind of being sarcastic. Again, my true nature. But And, and, and I have to say Milwaukee has changed somewhat in the last 55 years. But I, when I say it, I really am referring to the fact that, you know, I had loving parents. I grew up in a very stable home, in a stable, safe neighborhood, good public schools, you know, all that. But growing up intense near total whiteness was still devastating. You know, internalizing racism to myself was still devastating. You know, it took me lots and lots of years to climb out of that fog. And so there was a part of me that knew instinctively. I would say I had two great ambitions as a child. I completely failed in one and I completely succeeded in the other. The first was to be like everyone else and I failed absolutely. The second one was to escape. And I succeeded, absolutely. Yeah. And so I knew instinctively I could not live there as an adult. I knew that I had to try to find some kind of identity, some kind of, and I, I didn't even know what I was looking for, you know? Yep. You know, I think if I had been growing up now, it would have been very different. I mean, you know, one thing about young children now, they're completely growing up with the internet. And so you can find out amazing stuff and you can start to see, I could have visualized my life in a different way. I only had books. Books were very helpful, but I knew that I had to go somewhere. And I, what I wanted to do, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison undergrad, which was great. And I had applied to school, graduate schools in New York and California. I wanted to leave the Midwest. And then there's a whole personal story because my mother was extremely ill. She was almost on the verge of death. And so the very last second, I applied to Northwestern University and to the University of Minnesota, and I got in. I literally applied the last day you could apply to Northwestern. So I ended up in Chicago, and it's been, I had to be closer to Milwaukee for my mother. But it ended up being great because I found this life out here on the north side of Chicago that is absolutely perfect for me. It's diverse, it suits all my needs, it's the absolutely perfect sociocultural environment for me. But I had to figure that out completely by myself. You know, I remember, so, you know, I grew up with my twin brother. And when he went to study in London, one of my aunts, one of my mother's sisters said, why would anyone ever leave Milwaukee? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was like, oh, my gosh. But that was that was the mentality that, you know, my relatives and many of the people I grew up with, they lived their, their entire lives. Everyone they knew was like them. They had no, uh, I don't want to say they had no idea. I mean, it wasn't like they didn't know there was another, a larger world. But the idea of creating a life in a social environment different from the one they grew up in was just unfathomable to them, right? And so those are the people I grew up with. 
townies, as they're sometimes called, you know. And my high school, which was a very good public high school at the time, city school, only a third of the kids went to college. A lot of people stayed at home and they worked in a factory when there were factory jobs or they worked in the shoe store or whatever. So I had to, that was a part of my coming out of the fog. I just had to figure out how to get out. Did, did, did I answer your question at all or did I? No. You, yeah, no, you you did great. <laughs> no, I, I I could totally, there, there was a reason why I asked that because I think I tell myself that I've escaped my hometown in the state of Wisconsin too. And that's why I was so invested in knowing what your response was to see if there was a similar sentiment. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I love my parents and I love my family and my hometown is great in many ways, but I'm so thankful that I was pushed to go to college yeah. and I ended up in Milwaukee as well for, for university. And the thing was after high school, there was many people going to certain three schools. One of them was actually Wisconsin. And I had, I didn't want to do anything to do with that because I needed to get away from that group of people. Not because I didn't like them or any any of that, but I needed to find some purpose and I needed to find people that looked like me. And the troubling thing is when I went to Milwaukee, I was literally the only person of color in my classroom. Sometimes uh, sometimes lecture halls were hundreds of people. And I think that wore on me, especially through my mid-20s and my late 20s. And I think at one point in time, I told myself, I can't live like this. And, you know, I had a good job. Uh, I was, my, my parents were relatively good health and my sister and brother had kids and I loved being an uncle, but I also felt like I had no, no home and no purpose in Wisconsin. And that's why mostly I ran away to Denver and I tell people different stories to make me feel more relatable, but it's, I, I can definitely relate to that. And I think too, it's, it's, I, I struggle still in Denver too. Um, but it, you know, this podcast and Shanae and you have been really great to help me find community, but I, I definitely can relate to that. So I appreciate you sharing that. Sure. Can I share a story with you that might be of interest to you guys? Sure. Um, Absolutely. Okay, good. So what happened was, as I mentioned, my mother was very ill. I had already been accepted at schools in California, New York, but I, I applied to Northwestern literally on the last day. So the graduate journalism school at Northwestern, when I entered in 1981, it was almost unique, not quite, but pretty close to it among graduate journalism schools. They had a very strong POC presence. They had several black professors, several black deans. Now, uh, the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern has their top dean is black, and he, he joined a few years ago. Well, that was unique in those days, or, or almost unique. And and they were absolutely dedicated to bringing in both undergraduate and graduate, but especially graduate classes that were extremely diverse. And they were not, not only diverse racially, very racially diverse, but also by class. So we had a few rich kids, and then we, we had kids who grew up in the projects, and we had international students. So that was really the beginning of my conscious path. Being in that program, I was like, wow, okay, like it was the, you know, part of the fog is that you don't even know that you're in a fog. <laughs> you can't see outside the fog. You know, you have no idea. You have some vague sense that there's something wrong, but you don't know what it is. So interacting with those people, the students and faculty, I absolutely knew that I wanted to live a life that was filled with people of color, of all races of color. 
And that was the very beginning. It was the first time I got to interact with large numbers of people who were not white. And then I stayed in Chicago because I loved it here. And it took me a while to meet friends of color, but I did it. And that was the beginning of my climbing out of the fog. You know, I'm, I'm almost done reading this amazing book, Maria Inahosa, Once I Was You. And she was this, it is, this incredibly groundbreaking Latina journalist. You know, she's famous for Latino USA. And Maria Inahosa talks about what it was like to be the only one. She was the only Latina all the time. You know, she she broke one glass ceiling and she's the only Latina. Now, she grew up with a strong sense of her parents' Mexican culture. So she had that advantage. She knew what it was to be Mexican and to be Mexican-American. And then when she moved to New York, she got to know, you know, Puerto Ricans and Colombians and Panamanians, every kind of Latino. I didn't have that. But what I've been relating to so much in her story is how we go into new spaces and we have to figure them out for ourselves. Like she had to figure out how to be a professional Latina when there were no models. No models. So for me, coming into my career as a journalist, I had to kind of figure out who I was. Uh, what's wonderful now, so I'm a healthcare journalist and I edit a magazine around healthcare policy operations and strategic IT, and we hold s- small conferences with 200 people or so in them. And I'm interacting a lot with professionals of color, and it's absolutely fabulous. And I've had these amazing little cocktail conversations. You know, I, ha- I had this amazing conversation with a black woman who is the director of a federally qualified health center in Washington, D.C. Those are community clinics that serve the underserved communities. And what's amazing is to connect with other people of color, kind of almost like on a psychic level. That sounds very woo-woo, but (laughs) when professionals of color connect with each other in settings like that, this kind of unspoken thing happens. And if you're still completely in the fog... As a transracial adoptee, you won't get any of the signals, and you won't be sending any of the signals. But when you get out of the fog, you learn how to POC. I mean, that sounds really funny, right? (laughs) But now I've had these amazing conversations, amazing interactions as a professional with Latinx professionals, Black, every race. And it's hard to explain, but it's incredibly fulfilling. And what I wish most of all is for adoptees like myself and like yourselves to find themselves, to find their place in the world, to be able to be in a place where they feel strong, self-confident, and fulfilled. And I knew for myself at some really, really deep level that I had to escape where I grew up, and I had escaped that kind of suffocating whiteness. I just had a really long journey. And that's, again, why I have this incredible sense of mission about this, because I don't want the two, three, and four-year-olds to have to spend 35 years to figure it out, you know, not when they're two, three, or four night, you know, 2021. Yeah, it's a long, long road for sure. Yeah. Mark, it's been so great having you on the podcast. Yeah, Um, so great to be with you guys. Do you want to talk about cheese real quick? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to tell you a funny. I'm going to tell you a like funny that story. the important stuff. Right. I'm going to tell you a really funny story that relates to everything we talked to talked about. So, about four years four years ago now, this summer, 
we had the Khan Conference in Minneapolis. And one of my dear friends who I met through Khan, she's an adoptive mom of Korean kids who are adults now. But anyway, she, long story short, she was having this complicated flight pattern. So I said, oh, I'll pick you up in Chicago and we'll drive up there. You know, so we stopped at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I showed her the campus, which was really cute. And then I said, well, we'll just drive as far as we can get tonight, you know, and then we'll stop. So we ended up stopping near the Wisconsin Dells, which I know you know where that is. Yeah. And the next morning, and she, my friend is a morning person and I'm not. So she got up very, very early and she ended up sitting in the, the breakfast area with a young, young woman who was like 18 years old, who was like the breakfast area person. And they ended up having this long conversation about cheese curds. And then she and I, because there was a cheese place store literally like 10 feet away from the entrance of this motel. No surprise. No surprise. And we we got our cheese curds. But anyway, what was so interesting for her, she said, you know, and she grew up in Los Angeles. And she said, I could never quite imagine what a journey it is for some transracial adoptees to grow up in like the rural Midwest and then find themselves, right? And so she was talking to this young woman who she she told me, oh, she was so delightful. You know, we talked about cheese and growing up in this little town. And she said, something clicked for me this morning. She was like, now I see why it's so hard, right? So I pulled in cheese curds, transracial adoption, and traveling through Wisconsin in one story. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and and I I always try to tell people, you know, I don't want people to get the impression that I hated everything about Wisconsin. I didn't. There were were things I liked about it. And I went to Mm -hmm. what was then, I mean, sadly, it's kind of declined. But at the time, I was in an extremely good city school. I got a very good education. And, you know, I lived in a safe neighborhood. We had a wonderful public library system. I spent, you know, my brother and I spent all our time we could in the library. I partly escaped the world through books and learned about the world through books. So I had, you know, I had a good childhood. But I want people to understand that, you know, it's like it's like my aunt saying, why would anyone leave Milwaukee? In a way, that's kind of the most emblematic story I could share with you, right? And so my journey, I've had to imagine it myself to live it. No one, I had to create it myself, right? Like I had to create my identity myself. And I think that's one of the hardest things about being a transracial adoptee, because to create a mentally healthy, self-actualized, to reference Abraham Maslow, to, to create a mentally healthy, self-actualized identity, you have to go out and find it. Most people already have their tribe. Most people already know, you know, everybody's like them. You know, the kids I went to high school with, everybody's like them. And that's not to say some people didn't leave that environment. Some people did. But they didn't have to leave it because they were so alienated that they felt the need to escape for their lives. That's the difference. But, but, but we got cheese curds in there. So there you go. For sure. I love it. <laughs> and I also love that you went through Wisconsin Dells. I don't know if it was still, yeah. but, when, but I remember going to Wisconsin all the time, especially for summer. I think it's the water park capital of the world or something like so, that. Yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. Really? Yeah. And it's, uh, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, 
if you ever <laughs> if you ever go to Wisconsin, Wisconsin Dallas is an interesting place to visit for sure. Yeah. It's definitely true. Yeah, and my friend who's the the adoptive mom had never been to Wisconsin before. So it was all kind of exotic <laughs> for her, right? Like and I it was so wonderful. Like I love her. This is a friend I absolutely love. But it was so cute and entertaining because she was like, This is so exotic. I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, like, <laughs> like buying cheese curds was exotic and, you know, staying in a, a motel in this tiny town near the Dells was exotic for her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. for sure. I don't know about the hotel, uh, but I've also never been to Wisconsin and I've never had cheese curds. So maybe Benny will do bubble tea oh, for you and we'll do yes. cheese curds for me. <laughs> they must have oh them gosh. in Colorado, right? They must have cheese this, curds. This is actually a really funny story, Mark. So... Um, the first time I ever came out to Colorado, I had, a, I have a few friends that visited here or I shouldn't say visit, but live here and they moved out maybe eight, 10, 10 years ago. My first experience of Colorado was maybe, I think it was 2016. I came out here for the first time to do this amazing backpacking trip. And I stayed with an old college buddy and his roommates and he had a birthday and his girlfriend at the time, now wife, surprised him with some Wisconsin beer and Wisconsin cheese curds, but she told us, she told, or I shouldn't say, did I say Wisconsin? It was, it was cheese curds, but she told us she had a very hard time finding cheese curds, which just boggled my mind because you could find them on every street corner in Wisconsin, yeah, whether it was exactly. uh, raw or fried. But yeah, I, I, uh, I definitely feel like a lot of the restaurants now feature cheese curds because I think it's the in, in thing to do. Yeah. So we'll have to, Shanae, we'll have to, we'll have to introduce you to both uh, the raw and the fried version. Yeah, exactly. oh boy. I'll need to make sure that I get my, my supply of dairy pills because I am lactose intolerant. So there is that one obstacle. <laughs> you have to take some extra I would be willing to, to sacrifice myself for that. So. That's right. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, so great to talk with you guys. Yeah, it yes. was so great to talk with you too, Mark. You don't have an Instagram, but people can, you're definitely a man about town in the CAD spaces and transracial adoptee spaces. So I'm sure whether it's in a clubhouse or in the on transracial Facebook. adoptee perspectives, Facebook groups or at a conference, I'm sure that many of our listeners, adoptees and adoptive parents alike will cross paths with you at some point or another. <laughs> In the near future. Yeah. And the only reason I don't have Instagram, I have way too many social media platforms going already. It's like, <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. Yes. Can't anymore, so. yes. Well, thank you guys. Wonderful yeah. to speak. Yes. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Um, as a podcast, we have some updates for everybody. We're now streaming on Spotify, Google Playlists, and Apple Music. So you can listen to us anywhere. And we also launched our website. It's www.soulconversationspodcast.com. So you can check that out. And as always, if you want to be a guest, ask a question or leave a review. Or if you just want to reach out, we love hearing from everybody. Follow us on Instagram at soulconversations or email us at soulconversationspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for taking the time to listen this week. We can't wait to have you again on the next episode. Bye, everyone.